Well, it's great to be here. I want you to know how much I respect your pastor, Rob McCoy, and the great work the Lord is doing through him. Let's thank the Lord for your pastor. You have so many dear friends here. We have so many dear friends here, but I want to acknowledge David and Cindy Lane and the tremendous work they're doing across the country. And they are impacting the nation right here from your church, Godspeak Calvary Chapel. And uh, Kim, um, Kevin and Sam Sorbo. And God is using you in a great way to impact this entire nation. So thank you for letting the Lord use you in such a powerful way. Well, I'm going to jump into a talk, and I have a presentation on St. Patrick as a DVD. Now, 1,500 years ago, what would you and I have to do to have a day on the calendar to remember us 1,500 years in the future? So this guy really did make an impact, and I think by the time I get done, you're going to appreciate St. Patrick a little different. We're going to start with the fall of Rome. Rome had existed from 500 B.C., and now we're all the way up to 400 A.D., and uh, China had begun to build the Great Wall of China in different sections, but when they began to build it, it uh, caused so the Huns could no longer attack into China, and they turned west. And so it started this domino effect of these tribes being displaced across Central Asia, those are the ones that began to spill over the Roman borders, right? The Visigoths and Ostrogoths and Lombards and Alemanni and Burgundians, Franks and Jews, a lot of our ancestors. Anyway, uh, they came across. At first, they came slow, learned the Latin language and began to assimilate, work as servants and slaves. Then they came so fast, they kept their own German, French, and Anglo language. It broke up the unity of the Roman Empire. And so we began to see all these different tribes overrunning Rome. And uh, matter of fact, uh, you can see on the map there, there's the Goths and the uh, Franks and the Anglos and the Saxons and the, uh, here's one, the Huns. Look at the Vandals. And they went through there all the way into North Africa. You know what the Vandals did when they went through town? They vandalized. That's where the name came from, of the tribe of Vandals. And, um, uh, and so uh, Rome had reached its furthest extent, and Hadrian, the emperor, built a wall and said, this far and no further. Well, the different tribes began to come across these walls, and um, the Roman military was placed all around the uh, borders to try to uh, bring order, and they had to raise taxes for it. So one historian said the tax collector was worse than the barbarian, and then Rome was on welfare. The entire city of Rome was on welfare. The emperor was giving out free food so that people wouldn't be aware of the fact that their empire is really crumbling. And they call it bread in the circus. Now, it wasn't with clowns. It was the circus maximus. That's where they'd fight to the death. And so the people were getting free welfare, and they were preoccupied with violent entertainment. And then there's immorality. Uh, they had gymnasiums. You say, what's wrong with a gymnasium? Well, gym, G-Y-M, is the Greek word for naked. <laughs> so a gymnasium was a bunch of naked men running around. And uh, I went to school in Rome in college, and we would tour the ruins. And sure enough, they would have the slaves under the floor stoking the fire to keep the jacuzzi bubbling. And um, sex trafficking, exposure of unwanted infants, it was their version of abortion. So in Rome, the mother bore the child, laid it at the father's feet. If he picked it up and liked it, thought they could afford it, they got to keep it. If he didn't think they could afford it or thought it was uh, not healthy or whatever, the mother would have to put the baby in a box and set it outside and expose it to the elements and let it die. And a lot of the early
early Christian leaders would hear these babies crying and collect them and raise them as orphans and so forth. And uh, gluttony, uh, I, so I'm touring Rome, right? We're going through these Roman rules, ruins, and one of the rooms is actually called the vomitorium. That's right. They would fill up and they go, oh, I'll be right back. And they'd tickle their throat. And um, anyway, one of the Roman emperors actually gagged to death that way. Uh, but Rome was really into the sensuality, all of this. And they had big government corruption. Uh, and unjust legal system. And the Christians withdrew from politics, right? So Christianity, uh, you know, Jesus was born around 1 AD. And then we got, um, for 300 years, there's 10 major persecutions of Christians. And then Constantine legalizes Christianity, and it's okay to be a Christian. But then the Christians embraced something called this hyperpietism that said, if you really become a Christian, you should give away your money and live as a bum. <laughs> give away your money, like St. Alexis, right? He would give, give away his money and lived among the poor. Another, or you give away your money and join a monastery. Or give away all your money and live in a cave. Or in, like in Egypt, they'd give away all their money and climb on, on a platform in the desert and bake in the sun, thinking they're denying their flesh and getting holier. But it turned into all this me-focused salvation, and it abandoned any responsibility to the country. So during this time, the Christians withdrew from getting involved in politics, which left who in charge? All the, the heathen. And um, then they had outsourced all the grain production to North Africa. And uh, sort of like we've outsourced, you know, all of our manufacturing to China or to other places around the world. And uh, their military was stretched around the world. They kept bringing their troops home. And uh, so when the Vandals came through, they captured North Africa, cut off the, the grain. So the North Africa was where the grain was grown and the Vandals cut it off. So now Rome was brought to its knees economically. This would be like if China held their ships back for a couple months, all of our Walmart shelves would be empty and our retail industry would grind to a halt. Well, that's what happened with Rome. And then they began to have terrorist attacks. Attila the Hun, he had an army of a half a million men and he comes from the Mongolia area and they're attacking all these areas and into Germany and into Italy and into uh, uh, Ottoman Empire. And uh, St. Genevieve, a young woman in Paris, and Attila was conquering these cities, just leveling them. This is when Venice got started. Uh, Attila wiped out a city called Alio, and all the people ran out to the swamps by the ocean, and they would go out like a quarter of a mile, hammer down a bunch of logs into the sand, and they would live on these platforms and go from one to the other with these boats with sticks. And that grew into the city of Venice. Venice started because Attila the Hun was wiping out Europe. And so St. Genevieve gets all of Paris to fast and pray, and for some reason... Attila bypasses the city. So here's the map, and you see Attila's wiping out this city, wiping out this city, wiping out this city, wiping out this city. Oh, he skips Paris, then he wipes out the next city. And so that's where St. Genevieve got all of Paris to fast and pray. Uh, Matter of fact, Attila the Hun was heading into Rome, and Pope Leo, there he is right there, goes out to meet Attila, and Attila turns aside, and Rome is spared. And they say that um, uh, Attila saw these angels with swords above the Pope's head. See, there's Attila, and there's the Pope, and here's these angels there. So there's the Pope, and there's Attila, and there's the angels with the swords. And, but it only, it only bought Rome 20 years, right? So he was about 453 A.D. Attila was going to come. He turned back. But in 476 A.D., the Visigoths came, and they did sack Rome. And so Rome's really into all, all of its effeminate pleasures and sensuality. And these barbarians come in and they just wipe it out. And um, anyway, so during this time, Rome uh, had to pull its legions back from the frontiers. 
You think, I thought you were going to talk about Patrick. Okay, now we're at Patrick. Um, uh, Patrick was born around 389 AD, and he was in Britain, which was a Roman colony back to the time of Julius Caesar. And all of a sudden, when Rome was being attacked, they had to pull all the legions back from the frontiers. And so suddenly, Britain was left unprotected. And so there'd be bands of people that would rob and steal and kidnap. And so Patrick was a teenager, and he was kidnapped and taken to Ireland. Ireland was ruled by the Druids. So here he is. They're coming on the shore, and they're kidnapping Patrick, and they take him, and they drag him to Ireland. And so now Ireland um, was ruled by the Druids. Halloween came from the Druids. The Druids would chop off heads and they would kick them around and put them on those poles outside of their little fortresses and they would you know, have shrunken heads and scalp people. I mean, they were, they were the Druids. And uh, so here's Patrick. He's over there amongst them. It's sort of like sending your kid away to college. You know? <laughs> and, uh, and so here's Patrick surrounded up by all these heathens and um, uh, he begins to remember his parents' faith. And so he says, I was about 16 years of age. I did not know the true God. I was taken captivity into Ireland with many thousands of people, and deservedly so, because we turned away from God and did not keep his commandments. Now you think, did Patrick write it? Right. It's called the Confession of Patrick. He was in Ireland. I'm sort of skipping ahead, but I'll come back. He was in Ireland for 30 years. And then the church leadership in Britain became a little jealous and wanted him to come back for a little sit-down talk, a little church politics. You know how that, how that can get. And so he um, uh, decided, not here though. Uh, so Patrick said, I'm not going back to Britain. I was called to Ireland. I'm going to stay here, but I'm going to write my confession, my life story, and send it back. Sort of like if he had not been accused of something, uh, he never would have written his story down. Sort of like if the Apostle Paul were never thrown in jail, he wouldn't have written all those New Testament letters, right? So sometimes when something bad happens, God's wanting to bring something good out of it. So anyway, so this is part of his confession. And he says, so in Ireland, they believed that the woods were filled full of spirits that always needed to be appeased, right? The trick or treat. But back then the appeasing was human sacrifice, you know, and um, they have these bogs where it's sort of swampy and they would tie somebody and throw them in. And nowadays they're like excavating for a building and they'll find these bogs, find these bodies all. And, um, and so these spirits in the woods, it's your basic animism, Right, African tribes, you'd have little, you know, little gods, and uh, the American Indians, different areas where they'd have gods that needed to be appeased, and Jap- Japan, the animism, they'd have little neighborhood gods with little, you know, little altars to put a piece of slice of orange. People would, you know, worship their, and so they believed that the different woods were filled full of spirits that needed to be appeased. That's come down to us as the little leprechauns in the woods, right? So, so it's sort of ironic that they picture St. Patrick as a leprechaun. No, 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 that was the, the spirits in the woods. Anyway, so Patrick had the 10 sheep, and he writes this. But after I came to Ireland, every day I had the 10 sheep, and many times a day I prayed. The love of God and his fear came over me more and more. My faith was strengthened, and my spirit was moved so that in a single day I would say as many as 100 prayers and almost as many at night, and this even when I was staying in the woods and on the mountains. And I used to get up and pray for prayer before daylight, through snow, through frost, through rain. I felt no harm as there was no sloth in me as I now see because the spirit within me was fervent. And then he talks about, well, having a dream. He says, in one night I heard in my sleep a voice say to me, it is well that you fast. Soon you will go to your own country. After a, a short, again, after a short while, I heard the voice saying to me, see, your ship is ready. And it was not near, but at a perhaps a distance of 200 miles, I took flight. I went with, in the strength of God who directed my way, uh, to, to my good, and I feared nothing till I came to the ship. Well, lo and behold, there were some guys putting wolfhounds on a boat to take to Europe to sell us hunting dogs. 
And they tell him that if the dogs minded him, he could come along for the ride. And the dogs minded him, and so he got to go for a ride. He was shipwrecked in a storm in southern France. They call it Gaul, G-A-U-L, southern France. And um, so they're walking, and he says, for 28 days, we didn't find any food. And then they turned to me and said, hey, Christian, you say that your God's all-powerful. Why don't you pray for us? And so Patrick prays, and then a herd of swine come across the road, and they're able to kill it and eat. And, uh, and then he says that, all of a sudden, they started to want to keep him as a slave, like sort of, you know, he can, he can answer prayers. And he uh, said, but after 60 days, the Lord delivered me from them. And he makes his way back to Britain, and he's reunited with what's left of his family. And he gets involved in church work, but he's sort of uneventful till he turns 40 years old. And God can still talk to 40-year-old people. And he writes this. He says, in the depth of a night, I saw a man named Victoricus coming as if from Ireland with innumerable letters. And he gave me one of these. And I read the heading of the letter, which ran the cry of the Irish. And while I was reading, I thought I heard the voice of those who were beside the wood of Folkloth near the Western Sea call out, please, holy boy, come and walk among us again. Their cry pierced to my very heart. I could read no more. So I awoke. Sort of like the Apostle Paul had a dream of this guy calling him to Macedonia. And so here's Patrick having this dream, and he he pierces his heart, and he wakes up. So he takes this as a divine call. He's supposed to go back to Ireland as a missionary. And so it's probably around the year 430 AD, and he says goodbye to his family, and he's going to go back to that Druid pagan head chopping off place. And, uh, you know, sometimes you come out of a, a life situation, and then after you get strength in the Lord, the Lord says, I want you to go to minister to those people. And, and so here are the very people that had uh, imprisoned him. And so he goes back to Ireland with a small group of guys, and they're totally unarmed. And he first he goes to the farm where he had been a slave and finds the whole thing burnt out in a battle with a neighboring tribe. So had he not escaped, he probably would have been killed in that battle. So it it, it behooves us to, to follow the obedience of the Lord. Anyway, so then he goes to the chieftain and he goes right into the den of this druid chieftain. And this would be like you going into an inner city and going to a, a drug dealer, say, take me to your drug Lord. And they bring you into some basement of some, you know, warehouse. And there's this drug lord with all the gang members around, right, and everything. And you just preach the guy. So this is Patrick. He goes right in the middle of it. And he begins to proclaim the gospel in their own language, which he had learned when he was a slave. And the Druid priests realized pretty quick that this new religion would displace their religion and them from their position of influence over the chieftains, right? So you got the Druid Druid priests and Druid chieftains. And so these priests wanted to kill Patrick. And uh, the chieftain says, well, what's the hurry? He's unarmed. We don't get visitors that often, you know, and he does speak our language. And so the chieftain let him live and gave him a plot of land and he built his first church. And then the chieftain ended up converting. And Patrick would go this way across Northern Ireland. There's about 30 different chieftains and he would boldly confront them with the gospel. And, um, and then they would be convert and become uh, baptized and uh, just a very courageous man. And, uh, and then he talks about um, how he prayed in more dreams. He says, another night, whether within me or beside me, I know not. God knoweth they called me most unmistakably with words which I heard but could not understand, except at the end of the prayer he spoke thus, he that has laid down his life for thee, it is he that speaketh in thee. And so I woke full of joy. 
And again, I saw him praying in me, and I was, as it were, within my body, and I heard him above me, that is, over my inward man, and they were prayed with mighty groanings. And all this time I was astonished and wondered and thought within myself, who could it be that prayed in me? But at the end of the prayer, he spoke, saying he was the Spirit, and I woke up and remembered the apostle, saying, the Spirit helpeth the infirmities of our prayer, for we know not what we should pray for as we ought, but the Spirit himself asked us, for us with unspeakable groanings, which cannot be expressed in words. And again, the Lord, our advocate, asked for us. Anyway, so here he is, this Holy Spirit-filled man, and he's going into these pagan areas, and he's presenting the gospel and confronting these chieftains. And um, he says, daily I expect murder, fraud, or captivity, or whatever it may be. But I fear none of these things because of the promises of heaven. I, I have cast myself into the hands of God Almighty, who rules everywhere. As the prophet says, cast thy thought upon God, and he shall sustain thee. And so, uh, one of the stories is the contest at Tara, T-A-R-A, Tara. And this is area of Ireland where it's very flat, and there's this big hill that juts up. And the Druid chieftain would make everybody extinguish their fires on one night of the year and bring some gift, like a goat or something, to the Druid priests, and they would get coals to relight their fire for the next year. Well, it just, and whoever didn't do that would get killed. And so everybody's putting out their fires and they're bringing their little goats to the chieftain. And then Patrick says, wait a second, this is the night before Easter, the night before Jesus rose from the dead. Far be it from me to submit to this pagan guy the night before Christ gloriously rises from the dead to conquer over sin and death. And so Patrick goes to the top of the highest hill and he, he lights a bonfire. I mean... Uh, talking about confronting politicians. And so here, uh, he lights this bonfire. There's people going up there to the top of it, even to this day. And you can see the fire throughout the entire area. And everybody goes to the chieftain, well, what about that guy? How come he doesn't have to put out his fire? And so the story is that the chieftain sends a whole bunch of guys up there to kill Patrick. And Patrick prays in a loud voice, may God come and scatter his enemies. And they're sort of struck down. Similar to, remember, Elijah's on the hilltop and King Ahab sends these 50 guys to get, you know, Elijah and he prays and they're like struck down. And so the, the chieftain comes on bended knee and repents and, uh, and converts to Christianity. Now, uh, Patrick, uh, he's always facing these death threats. And um, there was one chieftain who had a, set an ambush and there was this narrow valley and he had his men hiding, and they were going to jump out because they knew Patrick was going to go from one side of the valley to the other. And they're waiting, waiting, waiting. And all, all day long, the only thing they saw go by was a deer. And the next day, Patrick's on the other side of the valley. And so one of Patrick's prayers is called the deer's cry, or it's also called the breastplate of Patrick. And this is a prayer that's been passed down through the Irish and still said today. But here's the, the prayer. I bind unto myself today the strong name of the Trinity by invocation of the same one and three and one, one and three. I bind this day to me forever by power of faith, Christ's incarnation, his baptism in the Jordan River, his death on the cross for my salvation, his bursting from the spiced tomb, his riding up the heavenly way, his coming at the day of doom, I bind unto myself today. I bind unto myself today the power of God to hold and lead, his eye to watch, his might to stay, his ear to hearken to my need, the wisdom of my God to teach, his hand to guide, his shield to ward, the word of God to give me speech, his heavenly host to be my guard." against all Satan's spells and wiles, against false words of heresy, against the knowledge that defiles, against the heart's idolatry, against the wizard's evil craft, against the death wound and the burning, the choking wave, the poison shaft, protect me, Christ, till thy returning. 
This sort of reminds me of walking down a, a dark alley in an inner city at nighttime. And it's like, okay, Lord, you're in front of me, you're behind me, you're above me, you're below me. It's like, I'm just trusting you. you know, God. And so Christ be with me, Christ within me, Christ behind me, Christ before me, Christ beside me, Christ to win me, Christ to comfort and restore me, Christ beneath me, Christ above me, Christ in quiet, Christ in danger, Christ in all the hearts that love me, Christ in mouth of friend and stranger. I bind unto myself the name, the strong name of the Trinity, by invocation of the same three in one, one in three, of whom all nature hath creation, eternal Father, Spirit, Word. Praise to the God of my salvation. Salvation is of Christ the Lord. So Patrick uh, was kidnapped before he finished his Latin education, and so he always had this inferiority complex that he was not smart enough. You ever been there? And so uh, we think, what difference does that make? Well, for him, it was a big difference because at the time, the church leaders were writing these deep theological works in Latin and talking about, you know, all these different theological concepts. But because he had been kidnapped before he had his Latin education, it sort of helped because he was able to talk in the language of the people. And he would use things like the three-leaf clover to teach the Trinity, right? Three in one. And um, now I found an uh, a very uh, comprehensible way to understand the Trinity. Um, if you look at the prepositions in the New Testament, and these are the small connective words, to, unto, of, from, by, through, in, with, and you look at the verses in the New Testament that refer to God the Father. Most of the time, not all, but most of the time, the verse refers to God the Father. The prepositions used are to, unto, of, and from. And most of the time, not all, but most of the time, that verse refers to Jesus the prepositions used are by and through. And most of the time, it refers to the Holy Spirit. The prepositions used are in and with. So, he that doeth the will of my Father, all things are delivered unto me of my Father. Whosoever shall do the will of my Father, come ye blessed of my Father, do the will of the Father. I came forth from the Father, comforter whom I will send from the Father. Pray to thy Father, which is in secret. I leave the world and I go to the Father. Appear not unto men to fast, but unto thy Father. And so here's the, the verses referring to Jesus. I am the door by me. If any man shall enter in, he shall be saved. I am the way, the truth, the life. No man cometh unto the Father but by me. Unto him be glory by Christ Jesus. For as the sufferings of Christ abound in us, so our consolation is aboundeth by Christ. But my God shall supply all your needs according to his riches and glory by Christ Jesus. But the God of all grace, who has called us unto his eternal glory by Christ. He which raised up the Lord Jesus shall raise us up also by Jesus. And they taught and preached through Jesus the resurrection of the dead. And then the verses referring to the Holy Spirit, Comforter, that he may abide with you. Spirit of truth, he dwelleth with you, and he shall be in you. You shall be baptized with the Holy Ghost. They're all filled with the Holy Ghost. Walk in the Spirit, and you'll not fulfill the lust of the flesh. I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day. But you're not in the flesh, but in the Spirit. The Spirit of the Lord dwelleth in you. So you get the picture. And I uh, found a way of explaining it, a football game. God the Father's like the coach. It's his will that's going to take place on the field. He's got the chalkboard with the circles and the arrows, and he's in the locker room. He's deciding what's going to happen on the field. But how does his will get from, the, from him onto the field? The quarterback. The quarterback comes to the sideline, and he gets the play from the coach. And the quarterback comes onto the field. Right? The word became flesh and dwelt among us. So the quarterback's dressed in the same uniform as everybody else on the field. Yet he's carrying the play from the coach. And what's the one player that gets to speak? The quarterback, right? The other players listen, but the quarterback is the one that speaks. So Jesus is the spoken word, right? He's the, the word made flesh. And um, originally there was one player, the Holy Spirit. 
And, uh, and you read through Genesis, it says the spirit of God hovered over the face of the deep. Now it says in, in Hebrews and Colossians, it says, um, in the beginning, you know, in, in John, in the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God and nothing that was made was made without the word. That means Jesus had to be in the Genesis story. And you go back and read it. So where was he? And it says, if you read real slow, it says, and God said, let there be light. And God said, let the waters from above be separated from the waters beneath. And God said, let the earth bring forth the creatures. And God said, let, you know, the dry land appear. Nothing was created without God saying. Well, what do you say but words? And so you got God the Father, you got the spoken word, and then the Spirit of God hover, hover over the face of the deep. When the word was spoken is when the Holy Spirit moved and brought forth the life and moved over the mountains and everything. Now we are all players filled with the Holy Spirit, and we're on the field carrying out the will of our coach that's communicated to, to us through our quarterback, Jesus. Can you say amen? amen. All right, you'll, you'll, uh, next time you watch a football game, you'll think of the, the Trinity. Anyway, so here's Patrick. He's there in Ireland, and uh, he's driving the snakes out. Say, well, there's no snakes in Ireland today. Well, it was warmer back then. Remember the Vikings settled in Newfoundland around 800, 900, 1,000. But then there was this little ice age where the, uh, the growing seasons got shorter and shorter and shorter and European populations migrated further and further south. And it went on for like four or 500 years and then it began to get warmer again. But it was warmer during Patrick's day, so there could have been snakes, who knows. Um, and so he's baptizing. He baptizes 120,000 people. Even World Book Encyclopedia said he found Ireland heathen and left it Christian. And, um, and this, this is the verse where he talks about how he was kidnapped. Patrick the sinner, an unlearned man to be sure. I had long had it in mind to write, but up to now I have hesitated. I was afraid lest I should fall under the judgment of men's tongues because I am not as well read as others. As a youth, nay, almost as a boy, not able to speak, I was taken captive. Hence today I blush and fear exceedingly to reveal my lack of education. Right? So it, you, I found that it's not ability, it's availability. Everybody say, it's not ability, it's availability. You make yourself available for the Lord to use, he will add the ability. And if, you know, God never, you can't steer a parked car. You're sitting there saying, what should I do, what should I do, what should I do? Just start doing something, and then he can steer it, right? And, um, and so, now the Druids were the pagans that would chop off heads, but they were also the bards or the singers, and they would travel, and they would sing, sort of like Homer, Iliad and the Odyssey, the Greek guy, that he was blind, but he had memorized the Iliad and the Odyssey, and he would travel and speak it. And so, these different cultures, before they had writing, the oral way, and so the, the Druid priests were also the ones that kept their history and kept their laws, but they didn't just say it, they sang it. Right? And um, anyway, and so when they converted and became Christian, they got rid of their Druid practices and they would sing psalms. And they would sing them as loud as they could. You have like 150 men in a choir and they would just belt it out. I mean, and they said that the singing was so loud and so moving that, and then the, the harp became the symbol for Ireland. And they said the angels would bend over and listen when the Irish would sing. And, um, Anyway, then Patrick had a bell that he would ring. They didn't have, you know, internet or tweet or uh, to say, hey, so-and-so is coming to speak. And so he would walk and ring this bell. And they'd say, oh, there he is. And they come and hear him. And um, anyway, so, um, and this is where he talked about how his, uh, the church 
politics thing. He says, and when I was attacked by a number of my seniors who came forth and brought up my sins against my laborious episcopate, uh, his church work, on that day, indeed, I was struck so that I might have fallen now and for eternity. But the Lord graciously spared the stranger and sojourner for his name and came mightily to my help in this affliction. Verily, not slight was the shame and blame that fell upon me. I ask God that it may not be reckoned to them as sin. So here you're doing the work of God and you got people slanting you and, and, and maligning you and writing uh, bad website blogs and making, you know, saying bad things about you. And so you have enemies on both sides, enemies on the outside, enemies on the inside, right? And, you know, they swear to uphold the Constitution against enemies foreign and domestic. I mean, Jesus has got the Pharisees and Sadducees on one side, and he's got Judas on the inside. So, so you know, it's always uh, where we have to rely on the Lord. He says, as for the as cause for the proceeding against me, they found after 30 years a confession I made before I was a deacon in the anxiety of my troubled mind. I confided to my dearest friend what I had done in my boyhood one day when I was 15 years old and I did not believe in the living God. Anyway, so it gives you an insight into this person that we know as Patrick. Now, he, he died on March 17th, probably around the year 465 AD. The place where he died is called Down Patrick. Sort of simple. That's where he went down. And... Um, <laughs> They haven't found his body, but there is this huge stone with Patrick carved on it. And, um, and so here he made this impact, and uh, he started 300 churches. And they were independent works, right? Because Rome was being attacked by Attila the Hun and all these groups, and they were withdrawing all their troops. And what was happening around the outback in this little island nobody in Rome cared about. And so it was pretty independent. And so it was 300 churches, and they would build a wall around the church, and they would have these little stone huts and a little chapel. And then they would have these towers where they would put in food and water and have a long ladder. And the door to the tower was way off the ground. And so when the Vikings would attack... They would ring the church bells. Everybody would run to the tower, climb up the ladder, and then pull the ladder up behind them. And then the Vikings would, would pillage for a couple of weeks. And then when they had enough, they would leave. And then they had the towers really t- high so they could look and make sure that the Vikings had gotten on their boat and left. And then they would put the ladder down, climb down, and clean up the mess. <laughs> sort of like the parents cleaning them up after a, a, a kid's stay over, you know. And um, anyway, so then... Um, so there's one of the towers today still standing. And so Patrick started these 300 churches. And these churches sent missionaries back to Europe to convert those heathen hordes that had overrun the Roman Empire. So it sort of went full circle. So those heathen hordes that came in in the first place, that caused Rome to pull back its legions, that caused Patrick to be kidnapped and taken, and then he became the missionary. And the next century, Patrick's work with these 300 churches sent missionaries back to convert those heathen hordes that had overrun the Roman Empire. And uh, so many of these great churches in Europe, like in Cologne, and they dig in the, underneath the foundations, they found ruins of an Irish church. And anyway, one of the Irish missionaries was named Columba. And Columba means dove. And so here's this guy, Columba. He sneaks into a neighboring castle and borrows the book of Psalms. And he puts it under his coat, and he sneaks back into his castle. He spent a year copying it. And then he sneaks the original back into the the castle. And when word gets out that this other castle has the copy, the king of the first castle says, I want that copy. You copied my book, I want that copy. Well, the king of this castle said, no way, that's ours. And it started a a war, and it had a battle, 3,000 people died. And this guy, Columba, was like so upset because what he thought was good thing, copying this, it turned out to the death of these 3,000 guys. So he voluntarily banishes himself to the island of Iona. 
And this is the, the copy of the, one of the pages of the Psalms that uh, Columba had written. In the next couple centuries, whenever they would have a battle, they'd pull it out and they'd uh, the march, carry it around the, the army before it went to battle, you know. But the, so Columba was a, was a big deal there. So Columba banished himself to the island of Iona, a little bitty rock outcropping between Britain and Ireland. And uh, he lived off of clams on the beach. And um, he started a little community. And these guys were so austere, they memorized all 150 psalms and would recite them every day. Anyway, so they would build these stone huts. And here's an in, one of these little islands. And uh, look at that little, they, they had this road that goes all the way up. And there's the little monastery up there. And these stairs are like so steep uh, that they would um, carve into the stone because they wanted to make it difficult for the Vikings, right, to, to come up and get them. And, um, and so these Irish missionaries, they would go down to the shore and they would get on their little bitty boats and they would put up a sail and wherever the wind blew them, they figured that was where the Holy Spirit wanted them to evangelize. How would you like to do that? Oh, I'm going to go on a mission trip. Where are you going? I don't know, wherever the wind takes me. <laughs> and they land, okay, God wanted me here. Here's the gospel. One of the guys was gone for seven years. St. Brendan. And he finally comes back and he says, I was blown way to the west, to the land which the Lord is holding for the saints in the last days. And he describes what sounds like North America. And uh, one of the stories of, uh, so here's these missionaries that went back all the way into Europe and started these churches. So here's St. Brendan. One of the stories was, that St. Brandon was in the, in the ocean and his boat hit uh, this, this sort of an outcropping. And he says, oh, what's this? So he gets out and feels like it's a, 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 like a piece of land. And so he decides to have a little church service on top of it. And then it starts to move <laughs> and realizes it's a, it's a fish. And uh, anyway, so they, so they have uh, the story of here he has church service on a fish, you know. And um, now, Patrick... When he converted all these people, by the way, Annapolis Chapel in Maryland, the Navy, uh, Navy School, Annapolis, they have a chapel with a stained glass window of St. Brendan, right? So this is the sailor that uh, may have discovered the New World. So these Irish missionaries are going back to Britain and converting the Scots and the Picts. One story was that the, the king closed his castle doors and there's like all these Irish missionaries, you know, like a hundred of them, and they're singing at the, at the top of their lungs in front of this castle and like the doors blow open, you know. And so the, the king's like, oh. Um, so these missionaries took with them the gospel, but they also took with them the code of Patrick. What's that? Well, when the Druids got saved, they're like, okay, we're not going to do the chopping off head things. How are we going to do our laws? And they go to Patrick, how do we do the laws, our government? How do we do the government thing? And so Patrick puts together some Bible laws, some Latin laws and salvages some of the Irish laws, and he puts it together. It's called the Code of Patrick. And so when these missionaries would go and start their communities and they're evangelizing, they would say, okay, get rid of the pagan stuff. And they would say, how do we do our laws? How do we do our government thing? And they would say, okay, we're going to start doing the Code of Patrick. Well, when these missionaries went back to Britain, uh, Britain, the, the Britons and the, the Latin who had been there, the island had been invaded by the Anglos. And then the island had been invaded by Saxons, right? That's where, where you get Anglo-Saxon. And, um, and so you had a king named Alfred. 
and his dad was the king, he got killed. Then his brother was the king, he got killed. And then there's him, and he's 20 years, 20 years old. And the Vikings invade Britain. And they're killing and pillaging. And so this Alfred guy is like squeezed and losing. And he's finally in the woods with a handful of his men. And there's a rock. And he puts his sword on the rock and he says, we're going to fight back. And uh, so he, they begin to do this guerrilla warfare. And they'll win a battle here, win a battle there, win a, lose a battle, win a battle, win a battle. And they finally pressed all the Vikings to the little corner of you know, East Umbria or whatever it was on the west, east, east side of, and then he tells the, the Viking king, you have the choice of converting to Christianity or leaving. And so the king converted. And um, anyway, but here's Alfred. He's now in charge of Britain and he uh, is going to put together some laws. What does he do? He takes the code of Patrick and he codifies it, which means he writes it down. So instead of it being an oral thing, now it's written down. And this becomes the basis for English common law. Why is that significant? Because English common law is the basis for American law, right? So here we have a preacher getting involved in politics. <laughs> this would be like a pastor being on the city council, right? And so here is Patrick having an influence on the government, on the laws, not just within Ireland, but in these places where they go like England, and it became the basis for English common law, and then became the basis for American law. And so here's Alfred the Great, born at whatever in 849. Alfred found learning dead, and he restored it. Education neglected. He revived it. The law is powerless, and he gave them force. The church debased, and he raised it. The land ravaged by fearful events, and he delivered it. Uh, Alfred's name will long live as man shall respect the past. And so there's the statue of him. See, he's got the law there. And um, there's the law. There's Alfred the Great. Here he is, the Code of Patrick. And he's having him write it down. And there he is presenting the scroll. And, and so the Vikings uh, did conquer England. Remember Richard the Norman, Richard the Viking. So the, and then the Vikings conquered a whole bunch of France. It's called Normandy. So what happened with the Vikings? For, from the 800s and 900s, these Vikings had these boats with these low keels. Are you still with me? Yeah. All right. Um, and so these Vikings would go up every river in Europe and they would kill the men and take the women, put them over their shoulder, and they would ride back to Scandinavia, Norway, Sweden, and Denmark. And so these captive women would have children with their heathen Viking husband, but the mothers would raise the kids as Christians. And so after a generation or two, the leadership in Norway, Sweden, and Denmark became Christian. And so they were Christianized Vikings, and they called them Norsemen or Normans. And so they uh, were there in Normandy, and then R William the Norman, it's called William the Conqueror, he invades England and he conquers it. So he's a Christian, but he has this idea that the king's in charge. And there's this hierarchical system and where the, if you're friends with the king, you're more equal. You're not friends with the king, you're less equal. You're an enemy of the king, you're dead. And, and so the people kept saying, no, we got these Code of Patrick. We got this law of Alfred. We got our common law. We got our civil rights. We got rights from a creator, not from the king. And so there's this tension that always goes on in England. Well, a couple other things. Um, the Muslims uh, conquer, and I'm going to be talking about that tonight, uh, the history of Islam. Um, so the Muslims conquer and all these countries send crusades to help the Christians that are being killed in the Middle East. And um, uh, England has a King Richard the Lionheart. He goes and fights in the crusades. And um, anyway, he comes back to England and he rules for a couple years until he kills. Then his brother, King John, takes over. Remember King John, Sherwood Forest, Nottingham and who? 
The Robin Hood story took place during this time. And so here's this King John, and he is taking away land and, and throwing people in jail. And so 25 barons surround King John on the fields of Runnymede, and they force him to sign the Magna Carta in 1215 AD, uh, which is the... Um, so that was Richard the Lionheart dead. And so here's King John, Johannes, John. And so, um, so these 25 barons surround King John, force him to sign the Magna Carta, and um, saying, look, you can't just take away our land because we have rights that go all the way back to the, the Alfred, the, our common law, which goes back to the Code of Patrick. We got rights from a creator. And so they're, they're, they're forcing him to submit. And so here he is signing the Magna Carta. And um, this is the first document limiting the arbitrary whims and caprices of a king. And um, anyway, just look on his face. He knows he's surrendered his power. And, um, and so how did all this Irish stuff come to America? It came in two waves. So uh, England was Catholic with Henry VIII, but then his wife, um, Catherine of Aragon, didn't have a son, a daughter, so he decides to divorce her, and then he makes himself his own pope, and he starts the Church of England. And Ireland was still Catholic, and Spain was Catholic. So Spain and Ireland were going to team up and reinvade Britain. And when Britain fights back, Spain leaves, but the Irish can't leave because they're like there. And so the British come into Ireland and kill about a half million and sell about a half million into slavery. And they're selling them throughout the, the Caribbean and everything. And um, anyway, I got some pictures here. Yeah, so, so these Irish are being sold into slavery. And... Um, and so in the 1600s, more Irish were sold into slavery than Africans. Then they sell them throughout the Caribbean and through these different colonies. And um, anyway, what happened was the British decided that this Catholic Ireland, they would transplant some Scottish people into Northern Ireland to try to change the demographics. And so they call them Scots-Irish. And they're there, and they, that's how Northern Ireland got Protestant. And they're there for a while, but then the, the crops fail for a couple of years, and a bunch of them decide to come to the colonies in America. And so here we have all of these Scots-Irish coming to uh, the, the New World, right? And um, so about two-thirds of the signers of the Constitution had Scots-Irish heritage. Thomas Jefferson's family was Scots-Irish, and so that was the first wave. And then the second wave was um, an Irish potato famine. And so in the early 1800s, Ireland had this potato famine, millions of Irish died, and then they came across to Boston and, and Philadelphia and New York, and they said if you were to put a cross in the ocean wherever an Irish guy was shoved overboard who died, you'd have strangled crosses all the way from Ireland to these cities. And, uh, but uh, at the beginning of the country, the country was 98% Protestant and only like 1% or 2% Catholic, and a tenth of a percent Jewish. I read through every state constitution. The original constitutions for nine states required you to be a Protestant Christian to hold state office. Three states said all you had to do was be a plain Christian. And you think, I thought separation of church and state. Back then, separation of church and state was simply to keep the federal government out of the state and church business. And um, so anyway, so these Catholics come to America in such large numbers, the Catholic percentage goes from 2% to 20%. And so there's a large anti-Catholic, anti-Irish backlash and they would say that the Irish is the white, and then they would say the N-word. And uh, anyway, and so the Irish were, were discriminated against, and they had to be spread out across the country. And, um, but they came in such large numbers that um, uh, the, they, they ended up becoming a half, of, half of New York City. And uh, the largest Catholic church in, in North America there is the St. Patrick's Cathedral in New York. And um, so you can see the... 
now, in Ireland, they didn't have any voice because it was an Anglican country. And before you could vote, you had to take the oath of supremacy, acknowledging the king is the head of the church. And so the Irish couldn't vote in, um, in Britain, but they come to America in such large numbers, the politicians say, hey, these, they've not yet figured anything what, what party to belong to. They haven't figured out. Our, so these politicians started marching in the parades. Now, the parades in Ireland always ended up in a fight because you'd have Protestants going through Catholic neighborhoods, Catholics going through Protestant neighborhoods. In America, their parades ended up just being a sort of a national identity. And so these politicians would march with them. And that's when the, the Irish began to get involved in politics. And they had their parades, their St. Pat's Day parade. And um, now back in Ireland, a guy named Daniel O'Connor led the effort to finally allow the, um, the Catholics to vote. And uh, he met with Booker T. Washington, uh, I'm sorry, uh, uh, Frederick Douglass, uh, when Frederick Douglass was um, uh, an escaped slave in America. And so he encouraged him. And uh, there's, there's Daniel O'Connell. He's the guy that uh, helped to disestablish the Anglican Church in England. And those that were against disestablishing the Anglican Church were called anti-disestablishmentarians. That used to be the longest word in the English language. Anyway, so um, uh, Teddy Roosevelt walked. He's the president. He marches his uh, cousin, Eleanor Roosevelt, down the aisle on March 17th to marry her fifth cousin, Franklin Roosevelt, on St. Pat's Day, right? So these politicians wanted to do things on St. Pat's Day. And, um, and that's my mother-in-law. She's since passed away. Her name's Callahan, Margaret Callahan. That's my wife, and that's one of my daughters who lives here, and that's my other daughter with uh, Clarence Thomas, the Supreme Court Justice. And so, Patrick... I bind unto myself today the strong name of the Trinity, by invocation of the same three and one, one and three, of whom all nature hath creation, eternal Father, Spirit, Word, praise to the God of my salvation. Salvation is of Christ the Lord. You know, as we close, the gospel, I was explaining it to someone. And remember when Adam and Eve sinned and they hid from God? Have you ever sinned against anybody? Do you want to be around the person you sin? Let's say you're talking about somebody behind their back. You're lying about them, joking about them, just making all kinds of bad things about them. And that very person walks through the door. Question, are you drawn to want to go over to that person? Or you're like, oh, great, there they are. Ah, I think I'm going to go out the back door. Your own conscience does not want to let you be around the person you've sinned against. Maybe somebody you owe a lot of money to, right? And um, so when Adam and Eve sinned, they hid from God. It's sort of like two magnets that are stuck together and one of them turns. The other one still wants to touch, but this one's just not going to, it wants to get away. So it's not so much that God sends people to hell. It's once people sin against God, their own conscience won't let them come into his presence. The magnet is the wrong way. And so Adam and Eve said, man, we blew it. We got to do something to make ourselves acceptable to God. And they said, okay, let's put on fig leaves. And that was, the, that was the beginning of false religions. The beginning of man coming up with man's idea how to make man acceptable to God. Did it work? No. And it says this one line, and God made Adam and Eve coats of skins. Question, how do you make a coat of skin? You have to kill an animal. You think God went to the other side of the garden, killed an animal, brought Adam and Eve some nice tailored outfits? Or do you think maybe he killed the animal right in front of them? And they witnessed the very first death ever. And they're watching this innocent animal go through the pangs of dying. And they're thinking, eh, we're the ones that sin, but, but this innocent animal is the one that's dying. And God wanted to make it really clear that this animal was dying in their place, that he strips the skin off the animal and he puts it on their naked bodies. Maybe it still had some blood on it. 
right? They were covered in the blood. And so for the rest of their lives, they're wearing the skin of that animal that died in their place. That image is always in front of them. And whenever God sees them, he sees them clothed with the skin of the animal, the lamb slain from the foundations of the world. So Adam and Eve tell Cain and Abel, and uh, Cain decides he wants to worship God, but he wants to do an offshoot of the church of the fig leaves. He starts the church of the fruits and the nuts. <laughs> it's a religion of works. And we know it's works because God told Adam, the ground is cursed for your sake and you'll bring forth fruit by the sweat of your brow. So here's Cain sweating and working and getting his barley and his wheat and everything. He puts it all on the altar. Did it work? No, his idea of making himself acceptable to God didn't work. It's another one of these false religions. Abel does the lamb thing. And it's this picture that God's on one side, man's on the other side, our sins separate us from God, and the lamb pays for the sin. So Abraham offered lambs. Moses said every family in Israel offered lamb. The high priest offered the blood of the lamb, brought it into the Holy of Holies. Solomon had a thousand of them killed when he dedicated the temple. Finally, John the Baptist points at Jesus and says, behold, the lamb of God that takes away the sins of the world. So God's on one side, we're on the other side. Our sins separate us from God and the lamb pays for the sin. So I ask people, are you approaching God as a Cain or as an Abel? If you are still hoping you're good enough to go to heaven, you are approaching God as Cain. I hope I put enough on the altar. Maybe one more handful of barley. That'll do it. Or are you approaching God as Abel? It's not me. It's this lamb that did it. Now, two things about the lamb. Um, you see, God is just. And he, as being a just God, he has to judge every sin. You know, that's implanted in us so much that every police drama you see on TV starts off with an injustice done in the first two minutes, and you're captivated the whole rest of the hour wanting the person that did it to be brought to justice. And when he's finally judged and put behind bars, you go, that's the way it's supposed to be, right? And so God has to judge every sin. He's the Lord of heaven and earth. And if there's a sin that happens, and then people say, well, how come you let that sin get by? How come you didn't judge that one? Well, if you could judge that, why didn't you judge this one? And so God has to judge every sin. That's the only side of God that the devil knew. Satan's in heaven, right? Lucifer, and he wants to put his throne above the throne of God. And God says, okay, you're out. And so Satan's in the garden. He goes, you know, if I get Adam and Eve to sin against God one time, God will have to judge him. Huh? You're a just God. I know that. They sin against you. You got to judge him. And God sends his fireball of judgment, but in steps the lamb and takes the judgment. So I was, you know, one time I was preaching in Kansas, it's real flat cornfield in this little community and they have their barns and their silos. And um, the worst thing that can happen is a hailstorm. Well, you can stand in the field and get hailed upon or you can go in the barn and the hail hits the roof. Ding, 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 ding. Jesus is our barn. And you can stand in the field, I don't need Jesus. Dude, don't you understand? God is just, he has to judge every sin. The accuser of the brethren, like in Job, you know, he goes before God, well, you got to judge Job. He said, you know, God has to judge every sin. But if you go in the barn, God sent the judgment. And so I was reading the book of Revelation, all these vials of judgment poured out. It's God pouring out the vials of judgment. Why? Because he has to settle the score once and for all, for all eternity. He's got to judge the sin. And so somebody can't say 10,000 years in the future, God, there's these sins, you never judge them. Maybe there's a part of you that's unjust. No, he has to judge the sin. And so in that sense, Jesus had the book of Revelation poured out on his head. He took the judgment for every sin that everybody would do for all of human history upon himself. Now, there's two things about the lamb. 
One, the lamb had to be spotless. If Jesus would have sinned one time, he could not have been our substitute. But two, since he was spotless, if God would have had Jesus crucified against Jesus's will, God would have been unjust for killing an innocent man. And God is just, so he can't do an unjust act. He can't kill the innocent man. And so the whole plan of redemption comes down to one moment where Jesus is kneeling in the garden and he sees that book of Revelation <clears throat> punishment about to be poured out on him. And he says, Father, not my will, but thine be done. He steps in there and he takes the punishment. So God is just in that he judges the sin, but he's love in that he provided the lamb to take the judgment for us. So we can approach God completely free of any consciousness of sin because he has cleansed us by his blood. Well, I'll end with that. Pastor, thank you so much for letting me be here.